And open your Bibles and follow along as I read, and uh, then we'll have a word of prayer. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming um, sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what, has, what, has, what was promised. For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has not pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the book of Hebrews, you give us a very clear direction as to how you want us to live our life for you. And Lord, when we see our sinfulness, it is very easy for us to lose our confidence from time to time in uh, believing that you, Lord Jesus, are the one who is faithful and you stick to your word and the promises that you hold out for us. And so, Lord, we just pray that uh, through this message this morning, you will help us how we can maintain our confidence in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now, as we come to this 10th chapter, the original readers of Hebrews had gone through a lot of difficult times of persecution for their faith, some were tempted to detach themselves uh, from their Christian fellowship in order to avoid arrest or 
reproach or suffering. And moreover, some were in danger of even turning their backs on Christianity altogether and reverting back to Judaism. But in this text, the writer of Hebrews was exhorting them to maintain their confidence, their faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what kind of trials that they might be facing. Now, these words are an encouragement for all of us as believers, which is a, a, it's open to us because we are looking for uh, his return. And when Jesus comes again, those who truly believe in Jesus, we will be on the winning side. But until then, there is a need to be steadfast. The writer of Hebrews gives five warnings. And I'd just like to kind of review those because we've seen them in various chapters of the book of Hebrews. But we have the final warning in our uh, text today. The first warning he gives in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, which is a warning about drifting away from the faith. Hearing the gospel message and doing nothing about it can be a very tragic thing. You just don't have to do anything, and you will be drifting at sea. The second warning is found in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 uh, through chapter 4, verse 2. That is a warning about doubting. And Israel doubted God, doubted whether he would provide for them in the promised land. So they wanted to send out spies ahead to check out the, the land to see whether they would be able to take it over or not. Of course, you know, they came back with conflicting reports. And uh, ten of the spies said, oh, there are giants in the land. There's no way we can take over. But Joshua and Caleb, they said, yeah, there are giants, but we can take over because God will go before us. Now, in our Tuesday morning Bible, or Tuesday afternoon Bible study, we've been spending since last September in uh, talking about Joshua being a man who was mentored and, uh, and guided through the, the ministry of Moses and how Moses prepared him to be a learner in order to become a leader and to become the one who would finally take uh, the children of Israel into the promised land. Well, last Tuesday, we finally got to the promised land. And we'll continue on until they finally take over the entire the, the entire country. So that's the second warning. Uh, uh, the result of uh, Israel doubting God is that anyone who was 20 years old or older did not enter into the promised land. They died before. 
And that was a result of their doubting God's word. The third warning we find in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, which is a warning about dull hearing. You know, the Hebrews were baby Christians with a, a low spiritual IQ. They could not get beyond the simple truths of the word. And the writer of Hebrews says, you know, folks, it's time that we move on. We have been working in the simple truths of the word for a long time, and now it's time that we move on to the meat and the potatoes of the faith. The fourth warning we find in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 20. And that's a warning about departing from the Christian faith and going back into Judaism. And the fifth warning that we find in our text today is a warning about apostasy. Continuing to offer blood sacrifices which had been fulfilled by Christ is a frightful thing. They can't look to the temple anymore because there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. In other words, if a person rejects Jesus Christ and his death, there is no other sin available uh, or, or sacrifice for our sin. There is no other way for us to come to God except through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we refuse to look to Christ, there's nothing else left for us but judgment. The Word of God is very expressive in this connection. Now, there is considerable disagreement uh, among Bible believers as to the nature of this sin. The problem is whether it refers to, one, true Christians who subsequently turned away from Christ and are lost, or two, true Christians who backslide but who are still saved, or three, those who profess to be Christians for a while and then identify themselves with the local church, but then deliberately turn away from God. They were never truly born again, and now they never will be or can be. Admittedly, there are difficulties in all these views, but my opinion is the third view is the correct one. Now, the question is, what is apostasy? In verse 26, apostasy is defined as sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. Just like Judas, the person has heard the gospel, he knows the way of salvation, he's even pretended to receive it, but then deliberately rejects it. Now, <clears throat> he has by his own will willfully rejected the once-for-all sacrifice for Christ. And therefore, God has no other plan of salvation for him. There is a sense in which sin is willful, all of it. We all sin willfully. But I think the writer here speaks of an apostasy that uh, has extraordinary seriousness. 
The fact that the author uses we in this passage does not necessarily mean that he includes himself. In verse 39, he definitely excludes himself and his fellow believers from those who would draw back into perdition. So we see in verse 27 that there is nothing left for the apostate but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. There is no hope of escape. It is impossible to renew an apostate to repentance. We saw that in chapter 6, in verses 4 through 6. He has knowingly and willfully cut himself off from the grace of God. He is not only an apostate, but he has become a, an enemy of the Christian faith. He is not mildly neutral to Jesus Christ. He is violently opposed to Christ. His fate is a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. It's pointless to haggle over whether this is real fire or, or not. The language is obviously designed to denote punishment that is dreadfully severe. So we see then in chapter 10, verse 28, that the doom of the lawbreaker in the Old Testament is now introduced in order to form a, a backdrop which to contrast the greater doom of the apostate. A man who broke Moses' law by becoming an idolater is one who died without mercy when his guilt uh, was proven by the testimony of two or three witnesses. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, verses 2 to 6, these words. Suppose a man or woman among you in one of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you has done evil in the sight of the Lord your God and has violated the covenant by serving other gods or by worshiping the sun, the moon, or any of the forces of heaven which I have strictly forbidden, when you hear about it, investigate the matter thoroughly. If it is true that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then that man or woman must be taken to the gates of the town and stoned to death. But never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness." There must be always at least two or three witnesses. The witnesses must throw the first stones, and then all the people will join in. In this way, you will purge all evil from among you. So what are the charges then against the apostate? Well, in verse 29 tells us that the one who turns away from Jesus in spite of his privilege and opportunity will experience the far greater punishment. Scripture says, to whom much is given, much more is required. So note the charges that are brought against the apostate. First of all, he is the one who may trample underfoot the Son of God. For a time he may have 
claimed to be a follower of Jesus. Now he wants nothing more to do with him. After professing to be a follower of Jesus, he now brazenly asserts that he wants nothing more to do with Christ. He denies that he has any need for Christ as Savior, and so positively rejects him as Lord. Has anyone here heard about Billy Graham? Is there anyone who hasn't heard about Billy Graham? He's a well-known evangelist, isn't he? Have you heard of Chuck Templeton? Chuck Templeton was a friend of Billy Graham, and he often traveled with him during the Youth for Christ days. And some said that he had the great makings of a, an evangelist. But when Chuck Templeton was in the seminary, he began to question the Word of God. And little by little, he turned away from his faith, and he also tried to encourage Billy Graham to do the same. And Billy wrestled with that for a while until he came to the conviction that God's word is true and that he will never question it. So that's how one can trample underfoot the Son of God. But secondly, an apostate has counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a very common thing. Eh, there's nothing special about the blood sacrifice. He had been set apart by this blood in a place of external privilege. And through his association with Christian people, he had been sanctified just as a, an unbelieving husband may be sanctified by a believing wife. But it's easy for an apostate to simply turn against the sacrifice that Christ really made and say that the blood atonement is not necessary. And it's happening in the church today, sad to say. An apostate, thirdly, is one who insults the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the one who has illuminated the Word to him, convicted him of sin, pointed him to Jesus Christ as the only refuge of his soul, but he insults the gracious Spirit by utterly despising the salvation that he has offered. So verse 30 tells us that willfully renouncing God's beloved Son is an offense of immense magnitude. God will sit in judgment on all who are guilty of it. And that's why he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Deuteronomy 32 verse 35 says, the same thing. I will take vengeance. I will repay those who deserve it. In due time, their feet will slip. Their day of disaster will arrive, and their destiny will overtake them. 
Vengeance in this sense means full justice. God is a God of justice. Not only a God of love. He is both. It's simply meaning that uh, God meets out what a person actually deserves. Knowing the character of God, we can be sure that he will do as he said by repaying the apostate in just measure. And again, the Lord will judge his people. God will avenge and vindicate those who truly belong to him. But here in verse 30, the obvious reference is to the judgment of evil people. It causes difficulty to think of apostates being spoken of as his people, doesn't it? But we should remember they are his by creation and also by profession. He is their creator, though he's not their redeemer. And they once professed to be his people, even though he never knew them personally. Kind of like what Reuben David said last week, when he said there are professors, but not necessarily possessors. We may profess faith in Christ, but do we really know him personally? Do we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? So I think the abiding lesson for all of us in this text is found in verse 31. Do not be among those who fall into God's hands for judgment because it is a fearful thing. This is the text that Jonathan Edwards preached this famous sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God. It is fearful to fall into the hands of an angry God. Nothing in this passage of Scripture was ever intended to disturb and unsettle the minds of those of us who belong to Jesus Christ. The passage was purposely written in a sharp, searching, challenging style so that all who profess the name of Christ may, uh, may be warned about the terrible consequences of turning away from him. The original readers of Hebrews had been going through difficult times of persecution for their faith. As I said at the beginning of the message, some were tempted to detach themselves from Christian fellowship just in order to avoid being arrested. You know, and this is what we see Christians around the world today facing when they are face to face with the reality of professing Christ or denouncing him. And some deny him in order to avoid being arrested or killed. But like Jesus says, don't worry about the one who can kill the body. You ought to worry about the one who can kill both the body and the soul. So if our life is taken physically, 
to still hold faith in Jesus Christ is eternal. And that is what will see us through. <clears throat> there were some who were uh, in danger of turning their backs on Christianity and going back into the Old Testament form of Judaism. You probably remember the sermon that Pastor Jason preached on when he said, you stink. Uh, and, and we do. But we have found a way in which to deal with the stink through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the writer of the Hebrews here is exhorting people to maintain their faith in Christ no matter what kind of trials that they are facing. These words are an encouragement for all of us who face difficult days to maintain our confidence in the Word of God. And when Jesus comes again, as we sang in the one song this morning, those who truly believe in Jesus are going to be on the winning side. What side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the winning side or the losing side? That's the choice. And until then, there is need for us to have patient endurance. I think the heart of this passage is seen in verses 35 and 36. In the words confidence and in the words patience or endurance. Confidence can be translated as being bold. Are you bold for Jesus Christ? The word endurance can be translated as perseverance. And so the writer is encouraging us to maintain our steadfast confidence in Christ. Don't cast away your confidence. And in the last part of the chapter, we are given three strong reasons why believers should maintain their confidence. Number one, our past experiences. Our past experiences should motivate us to maintain our confidence in Christ. After trusting in Jesus, the early believers became targets of persecution. And often their own families disowned them. Their friends forsook them. Their foes harassed them. And sometimes they suffered individually. At other times, they suffered with fellow believers. And yet, in spite of it all, they maintained their commitment to Jesus Christ. When their possessions were confiscated... How did they accept that? The scripture says they accepted it joyfully. And they chose to be faithful to Christ rather than to turn away from their faith. And our own experiences with Christ's faithfulness should challenge us to maintain our confidence in Christ in spite of the opposition that we encounter 
I have talked to several individuals just recently who are encountering that kind of opposition in the workplace. The hate mail that is given out and the harassment that is taking place in the workplace is sometimes very astounding. So it would be easy to simply zip it and be quiet about our faith in Christ and not encounter that kind of harassment or if we're going to be faithful in what we believe and wanting others to know that Lord that we believe in, then that's the risk that we are faced with. In verses 33 and 4, the writer tells us that sometimes their suffering was individual and was taken, or were taken out alone and publicly exposed to uh, abuse and affliction, and other times they suffered with other Christians. And yet all of this, they were not afraid to visit those who were prisoners for the faith even though there was always the danger of being guilty by association. And when their goods were confiscated, they accepted it joyfully. They knew, as they read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that God has preserved a priceless inheritance for his children. It is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change, and decay. Truly a miracle of grace that enabled them to value their earthly wealth so lightly. How about you and me? What is important in our life? Is it the material possessions that we have? And if we lose those, do we lose all meaning and purpose in life? Or if we hold on to our faith in Jesus Christ, do we still have something to live for or someone to live for? The second reason why we can maintain our confidence in Christ is the nearness of our reward. Having endured so much in the past, we should now not give up. Because you and I are nearer to the fulfillment of God's promises than before. We are nearer in faith now than when we first believed. So there's no time to turn back. Verse 35 could be translated this way. Don't throw away your trust now. It carries with it a rich reward in the world to come. What we need is endurance, the determination to remain faithful in the face of what God is giving us. So that's our goal and that's our hope. 
So we trust that you and I will be able to remain faithful to him. And then lastly, fear of God's displeasure. That ought to motivate us to have confidence in Christ. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 says, The just shall live by faith. That's how we maintain our confidence in Christ. And uh, next week we will be entering into the 11th chapter, which gives us the list of the champions of faith who lived uh, throughout history. And it, the life that pleases God is the life of faith. But if any person draws back his soul, God says, I will have no pleasure in him. My friends, let's keep our eyes on Jesus in these difficult days. Father, we thank you for showing us through your word this morning the way that we can maintain our confidence in you. We know that we go through some difficult moments on any given day. And when Satan makes every effort to lead us away from the truth of Holy Scripture, you have given us ample warning through the book of Hebrews that we do not fall away from the truth and become apostate. And so we pray that you will give, give each of us the strength not to trample underfoot your son or to count the blood covenant as a common thing or to insult the Holy Spirit. But by maintaining our confidence in Jesus in the face of persecution, you have promised us the reward of eternal life. So help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus. For we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Since there is no closing song for today, let me just uh, share a benediction with you. And I invite you to rise as we, as we close. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his holy, of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. And all God's people said,